Let's turn in God's word. I'm going to take us to a passage which I'm not touching on today. That makes sense. But it does give us an indication of some of the scenes we're going to come across as we as we start into Revelation. I'm in my second introduction this morning, the last and final introduction. I'm sure you'll be glad to hear. And then we get into the book itself. Uh, top left-hand corner, chapter 1, verse 1. And that will be Michael when he... Um, preachers next. So, Michael, you know what you're doing? Alright, good. Just in case you were going to do something else. It's publicly out there. But let's read God's Word. I've titled this sermon today, Chaos in Eschatos. And uh, it's mainly because I love to see the word chaos in the word eschatos because if you look carefully you'll see it. I even underlined for you. Because there's so much chaos around the way people see the end times. And so... I hope we don't add to that today, but let's see what God's Word says and let's come at it with open and fresh eyes and uh, then I pray that God would use it in our lives. So Revelation, and I'm going to read from chapter 8, one of the visions that the Apostle John saw, chapter 8 verse 13 and we'll read through to chapter 9 verse 11. So Revelation chapter 8 verse 13. Then I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit when he opened it Smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. In those days people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armour made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions. And for five months they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon, the destroyer. Now if you're fresh to Christianity or uh, if you've never read this before, you must think, what? And that's kind of what I'm still thinking. But we'll get there and I hope by then God has enlightened me. But let's look at this book of Revelation. The basic layout of the book of Revelation, if you're taking notes, is the Revelation is divided into three basic sections. We have the introduction and the letters uh, given to the churches in chapters 1 to 3. And so we'll be looking at each of those letters on its own when we get to them. And then in the next section, chapter 4 to 19, we have the unfolding of history until Christ's return. 
And then only in the last chapters, chapter 20 to 22, do we have the reign of Christ and eternity. So those are the three basic sections that we're going to be examining Revelation in and we'll come back to those often. So by the end of this series you'll know them well. But the temptation is to quickly gloss over chapters 1 to 3 so that we can get to the exciting bits like this passage that we've just looked at. In doing so, we however miss out on the imperative lessons that Christ would teach His church, including you and I, because we make up the church. Imperative lessons which Christ wanted to highlight to His church in the Apostle John's time but as much to them as to us today. And so we can't gloss over the first part and get to the exciting bits. We've got to look at every section of God's Word. Every single part of it is as important as any other part. So let's never gloss over God's Word. You see, Christ wants to teach us lessons about living faithfully for Him when? Now. He wants to teach us about not losing our first love. When? Today. And sometimes when reading Revelation we strain so much at seeing into the future that we stumble over life happening now. It's a bit like a guy trying to... Have you ever tried walking with binoculars or catch the eyes? You can see quite well over there but you can't see what's happening here. And you're sure to fall down. Well, sometimes in our approach to Revelation, we're a bit like this. We want to get to those end things, but we've first got to deal with God, what God puts in front of us right here because it's important. Otherwise, we'll stumble and fall. And that's where many people have stumbled and, fall, and fallen with Revelation. They keep jumping ahead and, not, and they are not paying attention to the basics. And so we need to do that. And so as we... Excuse my poetic language now, but I loved it anyway... Um, as we cast the line of study into the future, let's first cast it at our feet. Let's see what God is saying to us now. And based on that, He will give us visions of the future. Alright? Well, when we come to the interpretation of the book of Revelation, we come to a big word. We've got a few big words you're going to come across today, but don't get uh, caught in them, alright? The first one is this word eschatology. What is eschatology? Basically, it's just the study of future events. The Greek word eschatos means last. So it's the study of the last things. And there's some strong differences of opinion uh, regarding this, the end time drama played out, especially around the millennium. When you go and read about the millennium in chapter 19, people have nearly come to blows over the years because of the interpretation here. There are strong feelings. And even in a crowd like this, of us here this morning, there might even be very strong feelings about the eschatology around the millennium. But please, no blood. Let's discuss these things and let's honour God by the way we look at His Word. Alright? It's a tragedy when we allow these differing opinions to drive wedges between us as evangelicals. It's a tragedy. And yes, we can have differing viewpoints on these, these things which are not at the crux of our Christian faith. The way Jesus is going to come is not the same, is not at the same level of importance as 
Who is Jesus Christ? Is He the Son of God or isn't He? You see, when we come to the book of Revelation, God gives us only so much to know. The rest is a mystery, deliberately, so that one day when, it, when He appears, it will be made known to us. And we will give all glory to God. If we knew everything, there's less glory to give to Him. And so, there is that realm of mystery. But we mustn't get lost in it. But I plead with you this morning that we don't allow these differences of opinion to develop into a them and us attitude. Lord, save us from the them and us attitude. Keep us together in unity before your word. Certain publications you might come across will ask you to see things in a very specific way and there are very many different publications which come in different from different slants on these same events. We are not to be separated by them. We are not to be split up by them because who wins in the end? Satan. Satan wins when we allow that attitude to take us over. Because we should all remember that we are all sinners saved by grace. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are united in our need of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. That should unite us. And we must remember that as the overall picture. And so then you say, so does it not matter then what I believe? Well, yes, it definitely does. Because if you've got the wrong eschatology, if you've got the wrong view of the end times, it could affect the way you do things today. I'll give you two examples only. There are many examples. First example, if your eschatology is incorrect, you may, it may affect the, the way that you view your role in evangelism. What do I mean? Well, if Christ's return is next in the Christian calendar and if there's going to be no more opportunity for sinners to turn to Him for forgiveness and life the moment He reappears, then it should give you and I more urgency in the way we take the Gospel out, shouldn't it? However, if in my eschatology I believe that there is still time during the, the millennium when Christ returns, if that's when the millennium is. There is still a thousand years for people to come to the Lord. Then, in a way, it takes away the urgency of His coming now. There won't be any more time. Do you see what I'm saying? You need the correct eschatology. Otherwise, it affects your everyday living. There's a second example. If you've got incorrect eschatology, it may draw you too deeply into current world affairs. And you get so drawn up into taking political sides so that it will suit your view of the end times that you forget about His kingdom. You see, what is supposed to be at the forefront of you and I as believers, it is Jesus Christ and His kingdom, not political events happening in our world. And I've, warned, I've spoken to the people involved in this, but for example, the little publication put out, Carmel Alert, you'll... Quite a few of you will get it. In this current one, he speaks about, and I'm going to quote here, and I'm just doing this to warn you to watch every publication. I'm not saying throw it out. I'm saying watch out for what you read and evaluate. He's saying, if we are opposing to all that Jehovah is doing in Israel and the world today, hang on, let me take this from the beginning. In taking this 
seriously erroneous anti-Semitic stand, these Christian denominations join the secular world in appeasing Muslims in their absolute hatred of Israel. In doing so, they are opposed to all that Jehovah is doing in Israel and the world today in pre- preparation to establish his kingdom on the earth. So what he's saying is, if we go against what is hap- what the way Israel sees things politically, then we are actually standing against Jehovah God. Okay. We need to be careful when we say things like that. Another statement he makes, and I'm only highlighting it because sometimes he writes quite well, but this time he hasn't. Anyone who is an enemy of Israel, politically that is, is by default an enemy of the God of the Bible who calls himself the God of Israel. How can we say that? I need to be praying for the Jewish nation as much as I need to be praying for the Palestinian. Who am I to say one is better than the other and take sides? Our kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus Christ. He kept saying this to his disciples. They kept asking the Lord, when are you going to give us a kingdom? And he kept saying to them, my kingdom is not of this world. That is your priority. And we as Christians mustn't get sidetracked. That's all I'll say on that this morning. But please take note. You can get sidetracked by these things. So, we're going to look at the way the four main views, and they're, they're basically, if you really nitpick, they're nine different views on the millennium, but I'm only going to highlight four major ones, and they all revolve around the millennium, that thousand-year period spoken about in Revelation 20, and also whether Christ will return to reign before or after this period, that is, how the millennial views are arranged. All right? So the first one we're looking at this morning is the historic premillennialist view. Now, if you can say that without stopping, you win a prize. The historic premillennialist view. Early historians like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr were ones that taught this view. And basically, and I've really summed it up, if you want to know more, I've got the handouts at the back, you can pick one up on your way out. But basically what this view says is that Revelation relates to the life of the church only. And various persecutions will be experienced by believers right up until Christ comes again. But they'll be delivered from the power of the Antichrist by the return of Jesus Christ, described in chapter 19. And then there will be a resurrection of believers at Christ's coming, followed by the millennium of a thousand years, where Christ will reign on this earth with believers judging on thrones. There will be unbelievers present as well on earth. And Anyway, I mustn't go into too many questions here. Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years, the millennium, and with him will reign believers judging on thrones. And then, after that millennium, then the final judgment of unbelievers will happen at the great white throne, described in chapter 20. And then, we'll have the new heavens and the new earth created, and we will enter eternity for believers, and the unsaved will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's very basically what the historic premillennialist view compiles. Alright, I hope you kept with me. You looking glazed? No? Alright. Now we get to another one, uh, the second one, and this is one of the most popular ones as well. There are two most popular ones today. One of them is this one, the Armillennialist view. Dates back to the early days of the church, defended by early historians Origen and Augustine, and later by theologians Luther and Calvin. 
It's the majority view throughout church history, specifically in Europe, taken on by the early Catholic Church as well because they were part of the core church and then they broke away because of erroneous teaching. It's also called the uncomplicated view. don't know who set that up. But it's based on a straight reading of Scripture. Uncomplicated, straight reading of Scripture. Rejects the idea of a literal thousand year reign of Christ after His return. The that's why they're called the millennialists. There is no millennium. What they're saying is that we are now in the millennium. When Jesus Christ rose again, when He ascended on high, that's when the millennium started. The last time started until He returns again. That's when it ends. We are, in, we are currently in the millennium. We are in the church age, they say. And Revelation basically describes the history of the church. That's all those who are believers, including those who came to the Lord during the time of Israel, who were believers. It describes the history of God's church in total, and it does so in repetitions of seven cycles. It's the same, the same history of the church described from seven different angles, but each time one degree further to the ultimate description of the glorified Christ, which we find at the end of the book. So that's what I call the revelation ratchet. It's not the same thing over and over. It is the same history over and over, but it moves one up closer to the final scene of Christ, the glorious Lord and Saviour. And most images described in Revelation according to the millennialists are to be understood metaphorically as pictures with a lesson. We spoke about that last time, the big pictures we've got to see. However, there are literal scenes also described. But we need to use the correct apocalyptic interpretation. And that's why we spoke about the apocalypse. And how do we, how do we interpret the apocalypse and apocalyptic literature? And so you have to use the correct interpretation, otherwise you will come to wrong conclusions. And what started as God showing mercy to a group of people who He brought together called Israel comes to fulfilment through Jesus Christ who dies for all those who would believe, including those of us who call ourselves the church today. His bride. Arminians say that persecution of the church will increase and finally end with Christ's second coming. So we are in that period. And yes, we might not be experiencing much persecution in New Zealand yet, but all over the world, Christians are persecuted. They are persecuted. Further, they say that when Christ returns, there will be a general resurrection of all who have died, believers and unbelievers at the same time, and at the last judgment, which will take place immediately after that, believers will live with Christ in the new heavens, and the new earth, and unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire forever. So that's the millennialist view. Are you still tracking with me? Alright? If not, you'll have to get the handout later. Third one, and this is also one of the most popular views, called the dispensational premillennialist view. In other words, they divide up the future into dispensations around the millennium. That's all it is. The dispensational premillennialist view, also called the literalist view. 
It's a re- relatively recent view. It's very strong. Uh, it has a very strong American influence, um, especially men like John MacArthur, a great man of God, and David Jeremiah, a great man of God. I love to sit under his preaching too. But they hold to this view, the dispensational premillennialist view. It's a bit more complicated than the previous two, so you're going to really have to pay attention now. If I see any sleeping, I'm going to come down there. Not really. They say that Revelation chapter 1 to 3 describe the church age. That's the age we are in now. Okay? Revelations chapter 1, 2 and 3. After which the saints will be removed suddenly in the rapture when Christ will half return, get the saints with him and go back to heaven again with the saints called the rapture. And that can happen at any time. Now I'm simplifying here. I might over, be oversimplifying but And then they say in chapters 4 to 19 they describe Israel on earth, a seven year period of great tribulation for the nation of Israel on this earth but which won't affect the church because they'll be with Jesus, with Jesus in heaven. Most images we read about in Revelation are to be understood literally, including the one with grasshoppers with human faces and golden crowns, which I had a picture of over here. Not real grasshopper, you understand? Okay. And then they teach that at the battle of Armageddon in chapter 19, Christ will bring the raptured Christians who have been with him and he will establish a Jewish millennium in the so-called fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies. And hence they've got this, this emphasis on current happenings around the state of Israel, which are so important. And then, during this millennium, Christian saints will rule with Christ, with Jerusalem in its current location playing a big role. They'll also go back to a partly sacrificial system in the temple. And at the end of this time, Satan will be released for a final rebellion. And this all ends at the great white throne and judgment when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire together with his angels and the lost and unsaved. And then there will be the new heavens and the new earth And we as believers will enter into our eternal state. I hope you kept with me through that. I have to look at my notes because otherwise I get confused. So we've got Christ who will come. He will rapture the saints. They will go with him into heaven. There will be a great time of hardship on earth for the Jewish nation. And then he will return with his saints, establish a millennium period. And then together he will reign. And there will still be unbelievers at that stage on earth. And that's what I can't quite figure out. Thirdly, we have the post-millennial view. Sorry, the fourthly, the post-millennial view. And this one uh, dates back to the 18th century. Revelation seemed to be mostly describing the events of John's day with some prophetic material in it. And they believe that through the preaching of the gospel, the world will gradually be, be one to Christ. We do too. I believe that with all my heart. That's why we take the word, the word out into the world. The world is to be gradually one to Christ. But they believe, and this is where I differ with them, that things will get better and better. I don't see that around me. The age of the church is the millennium when righteousness and justice reign and good prevails throughout the earth. And the Great Commission will be fulfilled 
And everyone on earth will have a knowledge of the Lord. Everyone will know about God. They might not all believe Him. And after the world has thus been made worthy of Christ, He will return in glory to the world He has saved. Hence they call post-millennialists. He will come after. And there is a general resurrection of all the dead at that stage and there is only one judgment and then eternal life starts. Now you've heard those four different ones. I'm glad I didn't do all nine. And you think, what do I believe? What does I believe out of all that? I want to appeal to you this morning. You need to be convinced of your position by your straightforward reading and understanding of Scripture. You need to go back to God's Word and have a straightforward reading through it. Now, you might not understand everything that you read in Revelation and that's why we're going to study it together. However, you need to start with Scripture and then check to see that what you understand is also understood by others. Otherwise, you're wrong. There must be others who have seen the same things as you do when you read through Revelation. But start with Scripture. Be convinced by Scripture. Don't start the other way around. Don't start with someone's viewpoint and then fit Scripture into that viewpoint. That's how error continues and grows. Start with Scripture. I appeal with you. Let Scripture speak to you. And then, if you still disagree with someone... Agree to disagree. Don't get into fisticuffs. Don't get into verbal fisticuffs. Agree to disagree with those who don't hold exactly the same view as you. John MacArthur, I look up to the man. He's been ministering his whole life faithfully. He preaches God as a great biblical scholar, but I do not agree with him on all aspects of his interpretation. But I love the man. I've met him. He's a great man of God. I look up to him. David Jeremiah, I haven't met him. But I love sitting under his ministry. He's such a pastoral preacher. He preaches to my heart. And yet I don't agree with the way he sees the end times. Especially the millennium. We're not enemies. I love the man. I respect the man. And there are many others like that. And you might come across others here. In this congregation, you will not agree with everything. We are to love each other and to agree to disagree. That's the God-glorifying way of looking at these things. And so the important thing is this, and if you forget everything else and you haven't heard anything else I've said this morning, this is the important thing. The important thing is that Jesus is coming back. And when or exactly how He will accomplish this isn't as important as the fact that He is coming again. Do you see the importance degrees? And maybe we should all hold to the pan-millennialist view, which I haven't yet talked about. And that is that we carry on serving the Lord faithfully day in, day out, and everything will just pan out and we'll see how it happens. The pan-millennialist view. You see, Martin Luther said it this way, simply put, and I love it, he said this, we ought to live life as though Christ was crucified yesterday risen today and coming again tomorrow. If we live in this way, we'll be ready when Christ does indeed return, right? Amen to that Martin Luther. That's how we should live. It's not complicated. We make it more complicated and we get stuck in those things. And so I appeal to you today, 
that we have unity as we go through this book. And we can have unity as evangelicals. We can agree on specific things about Christ's second coming. And I'm going to highlight three for you and then we're through this morning. What are some of the three things that we can agree on as fundamentals about Jesus Christ coming again? The first one is this. And I want you to track with me here. This is really important. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. I'm going to repeat that. We can agree on this. And if you can't, you've got a problem. Because Scripture teaches us extremely clearly. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. He will reappear suddenly. How do I know? Matthew chapter 24, verse 44. You also must be ready, says Scripture, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It will come suddenly. You will still think He's not here and He's right in front of us in all His glory. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. If you were ready for the thief, He wouldn't be one, says Jesus. He will come personally. John chapter 14 verse 3, Jesus says, I will come again. I'll repeat that again. Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself. Two personal pronouns. Revelation 22 verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Very clear. He's going to be visible when he returns. The angels said to those who were standing around looking up into the sky when Jesus ascended, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he went in the clouds. He will return in the clouds. At least we know kind of how he's going to return. Revelation 1 verse 7 says he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So we know something about his return. He will be visible. You won't miss his coming. Every eye will see Him. And He will come bodily. The Apostle Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command or a shout, with the archangel's call and with the sound of the trumpet of God. When Jesus Christ reappears, it's going to be very loud and very visible. Every eye will see the Son of Man. Everyone. The dead will be raised to life. Those already alive will see Him. Everyone will see Jesus Christ. You won't miss Him. The second thing we can agree on as believers is this. We should eagerly long for Christ's return. We can all agree on that. If you can't, there's a problem in your heart. We should eagerly long for Christ's return. Revelation 22, verse 20. Listen to the Apostle's heart. Amen, he says. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry of my heart every time I visit someone like John. Every time I visit someone like Lindsay. Every time I visit someone who's suffering. Come Lord Jesus. I want to see you. Because then the suffering ends. Titus chapter 2 verse 12 to 13 says, and listen to this, it couldn't be more practical. Live sober, upright and godly lives in this world. What's your attitude to, to, supposed to be? Awaiting our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We have to be eager about His return. We have to long for it. 
But the problem is, the more we get caught up in this world and all the good things of this life, and good things are good, but too much good is bad. When we get too caught up in the good things of this life, when they take us over, when we neglect our genuine Christian fellowship together, when we neglect meeting together as His people, when we neglect our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then the, the less we will long for His return because other things are full their lives and our hearts. So eagerly long for His return. And then thirdly and lastly, we do not know when Christ will return, so we are to be ready. Matthew 24 verse 44, I've read already, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25:13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Mark chapter 13. I'm not in Revelation, am I? No, everywhere else except. But it's the same truth. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Listen to this. But of that day or that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, literally, be on guard. Watch, literally, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Stay on guard. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep in this world. And so the most important question today is not to which eschatology do you hold, brother or sister? The most important question today is are you ready for Jesus' return? As you sit here among us today, are you ready for Jesus' return? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Are you serving Him daily? Do you tell others about Him? If so, even if great suffering were to come your way, even if intense opposition were to come to the Gospel in this country, even if spectacular signs were suddenly to develop in the heavens above us, then you will not be dismayed or lose heart. Why? Because you will remember Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21 verse 28. When these things begin to take place, look up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Are you ready for His return? Are you ready for Jesus Christ's return today? If you knew He was to return in 24 hours, was there something that you'd quickly want to fix up first? Some relationship issue? Come on, let's be honest about this. If we knew Jesus was coming at 2 minutes past 11 tomorrow, what is there that you still want to quickly do before He comes? Is there someone you need to speak to? Because you're going to be appearing before the Son of Man. Is there something you quickly want to fix up? What's stopping you from doing that now? He can return at any time. He can unexpectedly appear to you, even today. Or, you could unexpectedly leave this life and appear before Him today. So what stops us? Do we believe our theology? Jesus will return at any time. He says to us, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Let's pray. Lord, 
when you said to us, you will come unexpectedly. You meant that. And somehow, we live our daily lives thinking there will always be another day. There will always be a tomorrow. I can sort my life out then. I can get back into my relationship with Jesus then. But you've said, you will come unexpectedly. You want us to be ready for eternity today. Because we've already started living eternity today. Lord, help us to keep short accounts of our sin with you. Help us to be urgent in the way that we see believers, unbelievers around us. May we see the lost who are going to an eternity without you. May our hearts overflow with compassion for them. May we break across any boundaries and any walls to get the gospel to those who still need to hear. May we start in our families, our children. We might not see them growing up. May we give them the gospel today. Our loved ones who still do not know you, be it a wife or a husband, Lord, may we bring them the gospel too. But may we do it in such a way that Jesus Christ is the one who is glorified. Lord, give us an urgency about the job you've given us to do here while there is still time. Lord, save us from being so caught up in all this different theology and all the different dispensational views and millennial views that we've lost focus on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are here to promote your kingdom first, none other. Help us be, to be servants of Jesus Christ first. And Lord, help us not to get our eyes cast on what is happening to us around us in the world to such an extent that we lose our focus on you. Keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep our hearts close to you. And keep our feet walking in the way of salvation building the kingdom of Jesus Christ until you suddenly reappear and we will know that you are here. Use us, we pray, in this week for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.